0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Roger's News. Tech valuations are in freefall amid a darkening economic picture, leaving private equity buyers like tech-focused titan Toma Bravo to sift through the wreckage. Welcome to The Exchange, conversations with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Jonathan Guilford, a columnist of Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from New York City. For this week's episode, I sat down with Seth Borah, a managing partner at technology-focused private equity firm Toma Bravo. Seth leads cybersecurity and infrastructure software strategy for the firm, which counts over $114 billion in assets under management. That means he has a front row seat to the carnage wrought on tech and M&A by inflation, a tightening Fed, and rising recession fears. We talked about what the shaky economy means for software investing, what's happening to valuations, how the growth of private credit plays into deal making, and the lessons Tomer is drawing from a history stretching back to the aftermath of the dot-com bust and beyond. Hello Seth and welcome to The Exchange. Thanks for joining us.
1: Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course. So despite the volatility of 2021's rapid bounce back and then this year's swing the opposite way, we've seen Tomo Bravo continue a drumbeat of deals. You guys closed Anaplan last month, bottom line in May. We're awaiting the final close on sale point. Can you just walk us through where the firm is right now on a high level and how your role fits into that? Sure.
1: Well, I am a managing partner at Tomo Bravo and I joined the firm in 2005. I spend virtually all of my time in this security software and infrastructure software markets, which is an area of the firm that I lead. And I'm focused on investing in our flagship fund.
0: Okay, great. And now when it comes to Thomas' investments, obviously 2021 a heady year for tech. Since January though, we've seen valuations come down as almost every indicator kind of slams into reverse, right? And this earnings season, we're starting to really see signs that the consumer might finally be affected. Putting the pieces together, that initial kind of enterprise slowdown that we saw leaking out from hiring announcements through to the latest kind of consumer reads, how does all of that feed through to the universe of companies Toma Bravo is focusing on? And does it imply that we have maybe even a little more pain ahead as any kind of weakening on the consumer side trickles through to enterprise?
1: It's a great question. And I think what you normally see um, in times of potential slowdown and, and economic slowdown uh, in software is that there definitely is is more scrutiny at the customer level in terms of what they're spending on, IT priorities, as well as um, bringing on new vendors. And so what we saw in 2008 and 2009 in, in the Great Recession was companies were were able to sell into their installed base of customers very actively, but acquiring new customers became more difficult. For us at Toma Bravo, we're we're focused on buying high quality of revenue, uh, companies that are mission critical to their customer bases, and businesses where we can really partner with management in any economic cycle to improve the business, consolidate markets, and create value in in a way that works really in, in every economic condition. Focusing on on business operations and market consolidations, and that's proven through um, really through through every economic cycle. Uh, so we're we're much more focused on the quality of the asset and the quality of the revenue that we're investing in and buying, and the quality of the management team, than we are um, focused on what might be happening either in the market or the economy at any given specific time.
0: I just wonder essentially if there is some kind of feed through because I think you see in market after market, we get these dislocations, right, where you're caught in kind of a bridge between the pre-downturn world and all of the assumptions that we had leading into January 21, and now having to deal with kind of price changes, liquidity changes, et cetera, coming out of the downturn now. Does that have implications at least for portfolio management for you guys when you're looking at coming up to exits from investments from previous cycles, or is this something where you are just trying to place the investments in such a, a way that they have less sensitivity to that.
1: We we have a um, a motto that the time to to buy a great company is is when you can. We are, you know, much more focused again on on what we can do with the company operationally in conjunction with management over the course of our investment horizon. The the thing you see today that's changed. You you know you certainly mentioned the macroeconomic overhang. Of course, we take that into account when we're looking forward and, and trying to predict what the business might look like in four or five years. At, at the same time, you have financing markets today uh, that are more expensive than they were a few months ago. And the ability to borrow uh, the leverage markets has um, also really started to constrain as well. All of that, of course, will affect what people can pay on day one. But the offset of that is that you also then end up with markets and market opportunities that really provide for much more interesting potential consolidation strategies. It's been hard to be an acquirer over the last few years. Things have been very expensive. Those um, evaluations reduce, there's opportunities that exist in the market to create value in in you know different ways. And that's been a core part of our strategy over our whole history, you know, as right. software investors, as as, as mm. investors in, in other sectors.
0: Right. And I think that speaks to expectation. I think a lot of people had early on uh, in the downturn, right? There was a feeling that the tech market, no matter what happened, was kind of overdue for a reset. Um, And that coming into that, like anything that pushed the market over that edge could be good for deal flow, kind of counterintuitively, because it brings it down to a level of just sanity for buyers. But in fact, it feels like what we're actually seeing, just stepping back and looking at the market as a whole, is that deal volume is down. Like you said, credit availability is deteriorating. The Fed has leaned into tightening. I mean, you kind of mentioned you know, that changes the upfront price people are willing to pay. Does it also have a kind of more fundamental effect on how you guys are running your investment screens, what your – methods for working through an investment thesis look like internally, or is it just you are sticking to essentially kind of like the same path to presenting something to committee, it's just that the numbers have changed?
1: Yeah, our our, our strategy has remained consistent over the years. So today, you know, what we what we see is a world, and I think what most people say there's, there's, you know, there's been a massive or fundamental value change, they're looking at the public markets. And of course, you know, that also then immediately flows through to private markets, sometimes it can take a little bit of time. There's been a huge change, and this is what um, I think most people focus on in companies that were trading just on revenue or revenue growth, in a world that was growth at all cost when money was basically free. Those multiples have come down quite a bit, right? If if you if you look at what's happened for the highest growth, um, highest revenue multiple companies during this period that you're you're talking about, you have double-digit revenue multiples that have come down now to mid single digit now if you look at companies that trade on cash flow which is the world that we are in ultimately not necessarily the companies that that um you know we think about investing in on day one because we do go through a process of working with management to turn these you know businesses into very high cash flow companies those multiples are still relatively healthy but people are much less focused on that uh, today, it's it's much more about what people see in these high growth revenue multiple companies that, of course, have really corrected because investors aren't willing to put up with growth at all cost environments, constantly losing money, um, and in some in some cases, very inefficient businesses where customers are being acquired in a very inefficient way. And so that's where you've seen the majority of the correction so far, both in public and private markets.
0: Right, that's interesting, right? Cause I feel like there are two big pieces to that. One is the this kind of question of which companies actually had the embedded profitability there that was sort of hidden under growth mode SGNA. Mm. And the other is this kind of multiple question. I guess just taking the the SGNA part of that first, it's one of those things that's been curious to me, right? Because Anaplan definitely was the term of transaction that at least caught my attention the most this year, both you know, because it was a growth mode SaaS play into the downturn and also because of the credit structure there. And then you saw, for instance, Helmut and Friedman and Pomara do something similar with Zendesk. Honestly, I'm interested in what it says about the handoff from kind of that old tech leading into January world and those expectations into the new reality. Because for a private equity firm, a company with sticky revenues, but profitability hidden under a really high growth spend, that seems like that should have been low hanging fruit for a while now, but it was maybe harder to act on in the past. Can you maybe like walk us through what the investment case here is for just generically something like an Anaplan or a Zandesk or what have you and kind of the moving pieces of why that works now when maybe it didn't work in the past?
1: Thinking about a company like Anaplan, that is just so down the middle for our investment strategy. and that's not just a strategy for us that um, started now. If you look back over our history and you look at the types of companies that we've invested in over time, we've been acquiring high growth companies, highly innovative businesses, market leaders. That's really the business that we're in. Anaplan, of course, fits that model really well, but we have many others that also uh, fit that profile. It just happens that, of course, you know, AnaPlan is 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 most recent and and a very large transaction and a company that a lot of people knew because it was a a very high profile company in it in its segment. You know, for for us, it all goes back to the product that that we're we're buying as part of these companies, making sure that it's a very innovative, market leading product. Looking at the customer base and, as I referenced earlier, the quality of revenue. How high quality is that revenue to the customers? Stay with the product. Are they happy? Are they reinvesting every year in the product? Are they buying more? And do we find ourselves with a team um, that we can partner with? Because for us, it's all about partnership, and and management is so critical, um, right? In every in every uh, in every investment that that we make, that it all it all goes together. So this idea that you know that a company like Kind Plan is something that is new to our investment strategy is really only true in some respects as it relates to the deal size. As we've grown over time, we've been able to definitely take part in in higher value transactions, large cap software. That's where our flagship fund is focused for sure. But the, the type of company that Anaplan is, has been one that we've been investing in for a very long time. And we really, in software and in tech, you wanna be partnered with the innovators, you wanna be partnered with the leaders, and you don't really want to be as an investor sitting in a position um, where you have to fix a product, or you're coming from behind because tech markets change quickly, software markets change quickly, and our best investments over time have always been with the most innovative companies. But now it's it's I think the profile's higher because we've grown, and you're seeing us being much more active in um, in the investments that you mentioned when we started, which uh, have been larger, higher profile
0: businesses. And I mean. Backing that up and, and getting Toma to that scale, is that mostly just about the size of the equity war chest that you guys can deploy now? Or is it more about, because the the private credit industry, which obviously was key to that deal, has sort of grown up around you guys and Toma obviously plays in credit as well as equity. Um, is it just, I'm I'm kind of wondering like which piece of it is more important there? I know obviously the the kind of private credit deals often require an equity cushion anyway, so maybe it's a bit chicken and egg, but can you, can you kind of maybe walk me through those two pieces of it?
1: The, um, you know, the software industry, the, the really nice thing about it is that it compounds at a very high growth rate. And for the most part, um, we have tracked that growth as an organization over time, since we entered the software industry as an investor, really back in 2000, um, with all the disruption that, that occurred ar- around the dot-com burst. That was really when we started to, to spend time in the market. And of course, now it's all, it's all we do at scale the industry continues to grow, it continues to compound. And as we raise our funds, we are we're raising them really to go after that market opportunity and, and grow along with it. We're investing in companies oftentimes that we've tracked for a decade from the time that they were startups to businesses that went through very, very high growth years uh, to companies that are are continuing at scale. And as they're 10, 10 or 15 years old, you know, to grow 30, 40 it's, percent, it's really the amazing thing about the software industry. So that's where our our fund size has really grown with the market. And that's where you see us spending time today. You're right that the private credit industry has been one that's also grown with us. And it's been an incredibly useful tool and partner to us as, um, as we look to make new investments it's a much more stable market for the most part than the syndicated debt markets which can be more volatile and really track more the public markets in some ways it offers price certainty for the most part in terms of interest rate which is very helpful and it's become a lot deeper in terms of how much you can you can borrow to the extent you know so, so that it tracks much more what a healthy syndicated market looks like and in some cases the private credit market has been more creative in terms of providing financing solutions to the types of companies that we're buying focusing on the revenue the quality of revenue at the company on day one uh, and not just how much capital the company generates and that's really right. allowed us to buy these high quality innovative high growth businesses
0: yeah and i mean i think that was the thing that was difficult for some of us looking at this from the outside to wrap our heads around at first because those loans that you're referring to based on a multiple of recurring revenue, obviously not just uh, vanilla revenue, they really seem like the key to unlocking some of these deals. And it's just, it was a bit of a paradigm shift for some of us looking at it because you know, you're know you used to post-financial crisis, the kind of whole thought process there being that, oh, you know, multiple of EBITDA is your guardrail around leverage, and that's not the case here. I I guess I'm just wondering, as you guys grew in terms of comfort with that, and I realized that ARR loans are kind of deployed at various sizes throughout the industry, how did you get to the point where you were willing to do something at scale uh, using that model? And I'm just, I, I guess the kind of embedded question there is, kind of what is the margin for error on these deals? You know, like if the pace of tightening or economic conditions suddenly see a big change after signing, like how much room is there before the economics or even the covenant checks on that credit begin to kind of slide against you?
1: It's it's a really good question. And you have to go back in our history to, to understand in some respects, the comfort level with those types of financing solutions. So we, we started investing in software when there was no lending available at all to the industry. And so we've always had to be really creative. And at every step in our growth and and sort of in our journey to where we are today, investing in these very, like you said, large cap, high growth, innovative software companies, we've always had to be creative. In the middle market, you had to be very creative and very scrappy. And as we've grown, we've also had to be creative. And the ARR loans that you mentioned, the direct lending, private lending solutions are all part of that because we're focused on really transforming companies over time into businesses that ultimately are not only high growth, but high cash flow. We're not just ultimately um, tied to the ARR in the business. Now, that being said, because we're focused on companies with really high retention, most of the companies today in software, especially at that scale, are essentially 100% recurring revenue companies we do always buy and underwrite revenue streams that we think even in a tough economy uh, because of the characteristics of the business uh, will continue to grow and at least hold their current level but because we're buying growth you can really see forward a few years in terms of in terms of where these businesses are going even even again in, in a in a macro that might be a little tougher but then you combine them with the fact that we really are helping some of these companies that have never in their lives generated any cash flow to partner with them to become companies that are both innovative high growth and high cash flow which is really what the investment community today wants if you look at companies that have continued to perform well and trade well publicly it's those kinds of companies and if you look at what's going on in the private markets today um most businesses are looking to get there that haven't been there historically you're seeing a lot of private high-growth, high-profile pro- high companies now needing to restructure to get there uh, because they have no choice. But we, that, that, that's what we help companies do, but we do it in a way that we've been doing for 20 years that ultimately leaves them as best-in-class companies and best-in-class performers across all of their metrics. Because of that, we're very comfortable with with the um, you know with, with the amount that we borrow on these businesses that ultimately ends up being very conservative, as these companies continue to grow and turn into very high cash flow companies, which most software companies have the ability to do, they've just not had that mandate. And they've not had anyone who's partnered with them to help them get there. And when you have a public market that is rewarding growth at all costs, that's the way people tend to operate, because incentives drive behavior.
0: Right. And so when you're of talking about that changing that mandate and changing the incentive structure i mean when you guys are kind of running the numbers ahead of an investment like that is it essentially you're drawing out two trend lines one is where you think growth rate can be maintained even as you perhaps moderate sgna spend as a percentage of revenue and you just see kind of where those trend lines intersect and kind of whether that meets a hurdle rate for unlevered cash flow is that basically it or
1: it is but i think the thing the one thing that you just mentioned that a lot of people think that is not our experience is that we have the ability to sustain growth rate but just changing the way that a company and a management team might might approach the market and so we don't believe and when we talk to to management that there's a trade off necessarily with how much you spend on sgna uh, and how much you are ultimately able to get back in terms of growth and customer acquisition and that's part of where we spend a lot of our a lot of our time so for us you're right i mean of course we're underwriting a return that we need when we make a new investment it has to hit our hurdle there's many different levers in a in a great investment that we tend to look to to see how how we can get there you know we tend to not you know not think about the world the same way a lender might because that's just a different it's a different profile but we we do you know we we do tend to think about what can we do together with management to really transform and grow? And that can be organic and inorganic. Um, and that's, that's the strategy again, that's been deployed over all of our time in the software industry and, and even other industries before we were solely focused on software.
0: Right. And it's it's kind of funny you mentioned, you know, you guys uh, have a long track record here. And it's just when you look at some of these public deals you guys have done, you'll take a look at the proxy and it'll just say, oh, yeah, 10 years before the deal happened, uh, Orlando Bravo reached out and just said, hey, how's the weather? Um, so, I mean, <laughs> obviously, you guys uh, have a pretty long um, history here. And I would presume you have like a wealth of kind of experience and data to back that all up. When you are setting hurdle rates and so on now, there's a lot of noise in the market figuring out what do final exit multiples look like? Like trying to see through kind of the volatility right now. Are you guys, yeah. you know, I, I mentioned Orlando, he obviously tweeted recently that we're back in a world of, uh, you know, unlever free cash flow being the metric. Are you looking at the market kind of mean reverting to an average tendency on multiples on that metric? Or is it more complicated than that? I'm just kind of wondering where it all lands.
1: It's It's a great question. We have always really thought about exiting an investment based on cash flow. So we we've not ever institutionally thought about an investment as a revenue multiple exit. And I think that's where you see a, a lot of valuation change both privately and and publicly and kind of back to this world that we're in that was growth at all cost people would think about look if I can just grow my revenue 50% a year for 3 years and spend any amount of money to do that I will compound return at some rate if if multiples hold. And of course, that's all changed. Even at the very peak of the frothiest markets, we think about our exit multiples in terms of cash flow, because the world's always been that way. Sometimes, you know, multiples go up and down. Certainly over time, the trend has been for cash flow multiples to increase. But we never think about selling a company at the peak multiple or even the the prevailing. Market multiple at the time we're making our original investment. And that's just probably good business. We've never wanted to make decisions assuming things will always be as good as they are today. And, you know, of course, when you look at free cash flow multiples, um, which is really how software trades today and uh, where it has really um, historically on average, those multiples, you know, tend to be uh, much tighter in a band than revenue multiples and recurring revenue multiples, which is where the market trades people today, um, or had been at very high levels, you know, before this most recent correction. So because because of that, as we're looking at exits, and we're looking at hurdle rates, and as we look back over time, we always try to do things within the bound of what's reasonable from a cash flow perspective. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that we've been so successful in terms of how we Think about the future, the types of returns that we need to generate, and of course, you know, our sector has been one that continues to grow. And I think management teams over time are nobody wants to run a business that loses money forever. So this strategy that we've offered, um, that we've always invested in, even before it was really hard to buy much in software, because to my earlier point, there really was hard to get a capital structure of any sort. We've always operated this way, and we've always thought about how we can sell something as being based on cash flow and never at a peak market market multiple, because you can obviously get in a lot of trouble that way.
0: Right. Okay. That makes sense. And I mean, to lift the curtain here, I was planning on asking you whether all the changes that we've seen since January are permanent, but it sounds like really what you're saying is there's been just a lot more kind of mean reversion and uh, I guess return to the fundamental thesis there from a period of, let's say, over-exuberance rather than the market kind of fundamentally changing.
1: Our view is that we're we're living in a in a world in in software and digital transformation that is still really, really early. And we will definitely go through periods of time where, you know, it's it's again harder to acquire new customers where companies need to be much more operationally focused. Um, They need to be much closer to their customers because customer buying behavior could change. And all of that is just about really good operations at the end of the day. And our industry, you know, software and tech benefit from the fact that it's it has been a very high growth sector for a while. And investors get very excited about growth and, and again, growth growth, you know, at all costs at certain times. And if you can t- take a step back from that and just focused on the fundamentals of being you know, a really good operator of companies in, in a great market, um, these companies can, you know, they're so enduring and so high quality um, with such great growth opportunities in big markets and all sorts of really interesting strategic initiatives around adding more product, both organically and inorganically. You really, you know, find yourself with incredible investment opportunities, but it takes great management and it takes, you know, it takes the right view in terms of how to run things and, and where the right investments are. And um, you know we've just stayed really true to that over time, while also getting involved in, in the highest growth, most innovative places in the software industry, because that's really where we want to spend our time. I, I think we're in a state right now that is obviously adjusting, but I still think that the most important digital transformation projects going on in every sector of the world and in every industry They'll continue because every company needs to transform, and it's just you know a matter of how quickly and what their priorities are. Uh, and then you know we we try to find the, the companies that we think you know are, are best suited for that huge digital transformation that we're just seeing in the world right now. And and um, you know that's that's you know that's you know what what we have done for all of this time we've been in software um, through all of these cycles. Um, that has worked really well for us. And we try to just stay true to what we're really good at at the end of the day.
0: Great. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Seth, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me on.
0: That wraps up this episode of The Exchange. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Amanda Gomez in New York and Sharon Lamb in Toronto. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and elsewhere. Also, check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.